Last week I shared with you that many pastors, many teachers, choose not to preach through the entire book of 1 Corinthians because Paul many times is uh, confrontational. He's really corrective in 1 Corinthians. And when the Holy Spirit began to put on my heart to preach through it, I've never preached all the way through it or taught all the way through it. My first reaction was, I'm just going to pick and choose which parts of this book we're going to look at. And as I prayed, the Holy Spirit uh, convicted me that, no, we're going to look at all of it. We're going to look at the tough and the easy and the good and the bad because it's a message for the church today. Even though the Corinthian church had pastors like Paul and Peter and Apollos and Timothy, they were a hot mess. They were dysfunctional. They were arguing. They had difficulties. They couldn't even get along in church. And uh, they needed the correction. They needed Paul's letter to be able to open up their eyes to how they were disappointing God and how they were becoming ineffective to the community around them. But the thing about his correction is as Paul corrects the church, he touches on topics that many people today would think are controversial. Topics that maybe are hot-button issues. But they're topics that I think need to be preached in the church. And so we're going to be looking at them. He looks at topics like what we've already looked at. Division in the church and power struggles within the church. A lack of unity within the church. He's going to look at sexual immorality. Sexual immorality in all aspects, in the church and out of the church. He's going to talk about lawsuits against believers. He's going to talk about the, 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 the worship and how we do worship and the dysfunctionality of worship and worship styles and how we make mistakes and abuse worship. He's going to talk about spiritual gifts and all their glory and how they can empower the church. He's even going to talk about end times. We're going to talk about healthy biblical marriage. We're going to spend some time talking about a man's role in a marriage and a female's role in a biblical marriage and the importance of biblical marriage. I think it's important that we talk about these things because for too long the church has abdicated its role on these topics because we've been afraid to offend people. We've been afraid to get people upset. And by abdicating our role, what we've allowed the world to do is to define issues and circumstances and behavior and instead of teaching church people what the word of God says we've allowed the world to teach them what the world thinks and so we come to some of these topics instead of asking ourselves what does God want what does the Bible say about this relationship or about this circumstance or about this behavior we lean on our own understanding that has been influenced by our growth and by the culture around us But understand, as I told you earlier, there's nothing new. Almost everything that the early church dealt with, we are dealing with today. Even to the point that the culture and the society that the early church found themselves in is very similar to the culture and society we have today. People say, well, it's not like it is now back then. It's exactly like it is now back then. That's what makes passages like our passage this morning even more important. And our passage this morning is going to deal with one of those controversial issues. Controversial then, it's still controversial today. And that issue is church discipline. So as I said earlier, I'm going to ask that you would pray for the Holy Spirit to give you ears to hear, to open your heart so that you won't lean on your own understanding or, or what you may have thought because this is such a misunderstood concept. 
And it's very important in the church, but it's so misunderstood that so many Christians are not open to hearing what the Word of God says because we've already settled in our mind what it is. See, one of the greatest struggles in the church is wrestling with the tension between asking ourselves, how can the church be full of grace and welcoming all people, regardless of their background, regardless of their history, regardless of the sin that they're living in, and yet still be a holy and righteous place, standing up for God's righteousness. See, our goal here at First Baptist Church is to be both. I want us to be a welcoming people of grace who, who are still pursuing holiness, who still are chasing hard after obedience to God. But how can we be both? So many churches wrestle with this issue. How can you be both? How can you be gracious and accepting of sinners, yet in the same place, in the same time, pursue God's holiness and righteousness? Well, the problem is, is it's a matter of balance. It's a matter of finding a middle ground, leaning on the Scripture. Because what happens in churches is we either go to one of two extremes. Either we go to the extreme on the far right to where we become legalistic and judgmental and hateful, or we go to the other extreme where the church ignores and rationalizes and excuses sin in the name of love, and it becomes powerless and indistinguishable from the world we're called to reach. In our text today, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul addresses this cultural issue. How does the church deal with sexual immorality in the church? How should the church deal with someone who is living in unrepented sin? And unrepented sin, it's not talking about one-time mistake. It's not even talking about a pattern of mistakes. It's talking about someone who is living in a place of sin and, and believes there is nothing wrong with their behavior, who is not convicted of that behavior, and even flaunts that behavior. Paul asks the question, when should a church hold its members accountable even to the point of removing them from the fellowship of the church? Now, before we look at this passage, before we find out what's going on in Corinthians, I want to just give you a warning of a few dangerous cultural attitudes that have permeated into the mindset of the church. These are cultural attitudes that we hear and see and listen to every day that have allowed us to begin to question whether or not the Bible really says what the Bible says. It brings confusion and distorts the truth of the Word of God. And so before we look at this truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I want you to be aware of these attitudes because many of us, sometimes unknowingly, sometimes unwittingly, have allowed these mindsets to become a part of the way we see things and the way we think of things. And I'm going to just list three, and I'm sure there's more. The first one is what I'm calling accommodation. It's in the title of my message, Accommodation. Today we might call it open-mindedness. Open-mindedness today is considered one of the highest qualities in today's culture. Now open-mindedness no longer means that you look at something from all sides. It now means that the truth is no longer grounded in facts or the Bible. You see, to be open-minded means that there are many different truths, and we need to understand that there are many different truths. That truth is not absolute, but it is now relevant. And many people have their truths, and you have your truths, and truth is now based on circumstance or emotion or, or situations. Just this week, I heard one of our congressmen from the House floor 
declare when confronted with facts that that's not my truth. I don't accept that truth. That's your truth. Well, the problem is there is no your truth and my truth. There is truth. And most absolute truth is found in the Word of God that Christians believe it. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that politicians don't stand for any absolute truth because they say they're open-minded, but that gives them an opportunity to take those stands and those things that they believe in and let them flow according to popular opinion or flow according to what the culture is doing or flow according to how many complaints they get about the stand that they're taking. Let me give you an example. Today, if you believe that gender is determined by biology or science, something that's been understood that stood for all of recorded history, you'll be called closed-minded and a bigot. See, the world wants us to be open-minded to the point that that we accept whatever their truth is instead of the truth of the Word of God. And to be honest with you, it's even creeped into the church because pastors are scared today to preach on certain topics. They're scared to address certain controversial issues because it may offend someone or people may leave or people may get angry at them. And the problem, as I said earlier, is sometimes those very subjects that we avoid as to not offend people are the subjects that we should be talking about the most. They're the subjects that so many Christians and so many churches are embroiled in because we have abdicated our responsibility. We end up with a bunch of immature Christians who have no scriptural basis for making up any decisions in their own life. They lean on their own understanding and what Paul taught us earlier in chapters 2 and 3. They lean on their own wisdom instead of the wisdom of the Word of God. Accommodation. The second one that I want to talk about is tolerance. Now, most of us understand tolerance. It's a huge buzzword today. Everyone is talking about tolerance. But the problem is, tolerance used to mean that we were expected by everyone around us to accept behavior, to accept a lifestyle, no matter what it was. But you see, that's not tolerance today. Tolerance today doesn't mean we're just supposed to accept someone else's lifestyle or accept someone else's behavior. We are supposed to celebrate it. We're supposed to act like there is nothing wrong with it. And if we don't celebrate it, then we're intolerant bigots. And it's not just an issue in the culture, it's an issue in the church. Let me ask you what happens when you dare question a church friend or a church member about something they're doing or about a lifestyle or about a behavior. You know what you're going to hear? Do not judge. Jesus says do not judge. That's the answer. And so in church, we don't talk about things that we need to be talking about. We don't talk about the things that are confronting people's lives, the things that are dragging people down, the things that are distorting the Word of God because we're afraid someone's going to tell us not to judge. The problem is that's not what Scripture actually says. We're going to find out here in 1 Corinthians 5. Scripture is very clear that judgment starts in the body of Christ. My job is not to judge those outside of the body. My job is not to judge every... Listen, we can't get mad when sinners sin. That's part of their job description. That's who they are. Sinners sin. But we can get angry when people that claim to be Christians, claim to be born again, claim to be filled with the Spirit of God, find themselves in a pattern of sin, in a behavior of sin, that they excuse or rationalize or unrepented of. That's the body of Christ's responsibility. To speak and to not speak is not loving. 
See, the world's got it backwards. The world tells us today that, that you can't love and disagree with someone's behavior. You can't love and disagree with someone's lifestyle. That's just the opposite for the Christian. Because the Bible tells us many of those lifestyles, many of those behaviors are destructive. They bring pain. They bring suffering. And who are we to say that we love somebody if we have a friend or a family member or a loved one who claims to be in Christ and we see them moving down a path of destruction, moving down a path that may even hinder their eternal security, and we don't say anything? That's not love. Tolerance. Accommodation. The third attitude that's creeped into the church is indifference. And this is the idea that we're taught not to care what someone else does because it's their own private life. See, privacy today has been elevated to a constitutional status in the United States of America. Who am I to say anything because it's not my business what they do. It's not my business how they act. See, it's become easy to ignore, excuse behavior and actions on the ground that it's not my business. We convince ourselves, it doesn't affect me, so why should I care? But that's the problem. It does affect you. Because you see, we live in a community. We live in a nation. We live in a town. We live in an area where everyone's behavior affects everyone else. Behavior and actions and decisions don't happen in a vacuum. They always have consequences. They always have effects and they will always affect other people. And usually the people closest to that person are the ones most affected by it. But we've been convinced that we shouldn't say anything because it's, it's their private life. We shouldn't say anything because it doesn't affect us. Let me give you an example. People today say that abortion is a privacy issue and nobody else's business. So we shouldn't say anything about it. But I want to suggest that the murderer of 60 million preborn children has had a huge effect on our culture and our society. So much so today that our culture has such a low value of life that people think there's no problem with going into a school and shooting people. That people think there's no problem with robbing and killing somebody for a pair of shoes or $10. You don't think that behavior has consequences? We tell ourselves, well, I need to be quiet or I should be silent. In the church, we tell ourselves that we can be silent at best or indifferent at worst because we think it doesn't affect us until it does. And it has. And it is. You know the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat? The thermometer gauges the temperature. A thermostat sets the temperature. God created the church to be a spiritual thermostat for our culture and community. That means that we are called to set the spiritual temperature in our nation, in our state, in our neighborhood, in our schools, in our home. But what we've done is we've remained silent and we've abdicated that role so that we might become a thermometer where we just gauge what's going on. No, we complain about it. We argue about it, but we just gauge what's going on and we tolerate and we accommodate and we become indifferent to the culture around us. So many churches have decided that the best answer is just to not do anything, not engage the culture, and just be our own little holy huddles. That leads to death. It's not what the church is called to. Paul directly warns the church at Corinth that this is a danger. Paul directly addresses the church at Corinth that if they're not careful, this is what's going to happen. And he does it by 
revealing by showing one of the symptoms that leads to tolerance and indifference and abandonment. What was happening in the church at Corinth is the church was not only accommodating blatant sin, the church was celebrating it. They weren't just letting people live unrepentant, sinful lives within the church. They were proud of it for the sake of being progressive. Sounds like that could come out of one of the denominational headlines today. If you've got a Bible, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 5, and we're quickly going to look at what I mean and what Paul says and how he spells it out. Now, before I start to read, I want to just tell you what's going on, just help you understand what's going on in Corinth. Paul has gotten word that there is a prominent church member in the church of Corinth who has been and who is living and sexually involved with his stepmother. Now understand in the Roman culture, even in the culture that Paul has, that older men would marry younger women. That was just part of it. Their wives would die and they'd marry younger women. And so apparently this man had, had died and his wife took up house with his son. Now you may not think that's a big deal, but in the Roman culture that was considered incest. The Bible says in Leviticus 18, it is a sin of incest. It's so bad that even the Romans didn't celebrate it, they punished it. It was considered a crime in the Roman world. But yet this was happening in the church. Now it's assumed the father is dead, and it's also assumed that this just didn't start. It's been an ongoing relationship because Paul suggests that he had already addressed it in an earlier letter that we don't have. That he'd already told them, listen, this is going to be a problem. This is a problem for the church. This is a problem for you. He warned them that they needed to do something about it. And what's striking about the passage we're about to read is that the man himself is never really addressed directly. Rather, Paul's concern is the church and how the church was mishandling the situation by ignoring it. How they were mishandling the situation by not only ignoring it, they were taking pride in it. You see, with the church at Corinth, who, who were arrogant and prideful anyway, we've already discovered, who thought they had all the answers, had decided they were going to be even more progressive than the Roman culture by accepting what the Roman people even rejected as a part of their life. They said, we're, we're going to be loving, we're going to be progressive, so we are going to approve and celebrate. They were even bragging about it. This is how progressive we are. This is how loving we are. We've got somebody in our church who is living with his stepmother in sin. They're not married. They're living together. And they were allowing it to continue. Let me read what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. For it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of the kind that doesn't even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather be filled with grief and put him out of your fellowship, the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I've already passed judgment on the one who did this. He's saying, I already told you what to do, just as if I was present. But when you assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord is present, you need to hand this man over to Satan. That doesn't mean literally hand him over to Satan. What it means is leave him to his own devices. Let him deal with the consequences of his actions so that his sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Now Paul is clearly advocating for what we call church discipline. 
Church discipline has been a part of the church since the founding of the church. It is where someone who is in a blatant public sin and is unrepented is removed from fellowship of the body of Christ. It's not something that's done lightly. It's not something that's done on a whim. It is a place of the church holding other church members accountable for their actions. Now we forget sometimes that being a member of a church is not a right. It's a privilege. And with that privilege comes responsibility. And part of that responsibility is striving to uphold the principles of what salvation did for us. Living for Christ. Being who Christ called us to be. All of us in the church family are accountable. Why? Because our actions, our behavior affects the whole body. Doesn't just affect you. Now church church discipline is one of those practices that has fallen out of favor recently. Most of the time, it's fallen out of favor because of abuses. I just read the last couple of weeks, there was a pastor who, who used church discipline to try to silence his critics within the church. Tried to, to control people in the church to, to keep them from asking questions about him. That's not what church discipline was to be used for. But yet you have those abuses, so churches say, we're not even going to try it, we're not even going to do it, because there's abuses of it. But the main reason it's ignored is the reasons I mentioned earlier, because it's easier for the church to just ignore it, act like it doesn't happen, and hope it goes away. That's what happened with the sexual abuse scandals that we found in the Roman Catholic Church and now in the Baptist Church. Because we decided when we find somebody that is sexually abusive, a church member that is abusing sexually somebody else in the church, it's just easier. We don't need the bad publicity. We don't need people to think. So it's easier just to keep it quiet, ignore it, downplay it, and hope that it goes away. But the problem is it never goes away. It festers and gets worse and destroys the body of Christ. Every church that I've been a part of, every church that I've had... Issues like this involved, and they ignored it. It only got worse. It never got better. One of the churches I served in many years ago had a prominent member. He was a prominent deacon. Matter of fact, he served as chairman of the deacons when I was there. He decided to leave his wife. He was cheating on his wife. He left her and the kids and moved in with his wife. Moved in with his girlfriend, I mean. He did this at the same time that he was an active church deacon. He was singing in the choir led prayers on Sunday morning, lived his life like no problem, and nobody said a word. You see, the church leadership, the other deacons, the pastor, the staff, they were too scared. Why? Because he was a huge financial contributor to the church. And they justified that it was easier just to ignore it. It was easier just to act like it wasn't a big deal. Instead of confronting him, instead of dealing with the sin that he was living in while he was representing the body of Christ. And I'll tell you that it devastated the reputation and the ministry of that church in that small town. Eventually, the church led to a split, but not before there was one issue after another issue after another issue. Because the moment you allow something like that to not just happen, but to thrive and to celebrate, it's like a cancer that destroys the body. Now understand, Paul's not talking about a sin. He's not talking about a pattern of sin. Everyone in this room struggles with sin. If we started asking everybody that sins to leave the church, you wouldn't have a pastor. That's just the way it is. Nobody would be here because all of us struggle with sin. He is specifically talking about someone in the church who is unrepented of their sin. 
Some in the church whose sin was public and they continue to live in it. And Paul's main disappointment is with the church and their attitude about the church. Their idea of being progressive, their idea of being accepted, their idea of celebrating that sin. And I have to tell you, to be honest, the same attitude is happening all over the church world today. It's interesting, the word he uses for sexual immorality here is the Greek word porneia. It's where we get the word pornography, and it doesn't just mean sex. It means any sexual behavior outside the bounds of biblical marriage. Let me just warn you. As our culture shifts and the moral norms on lifestyle and sexuality continue to shift, we do well to remember Paul's warning here. Especially when people come to us and say, the Bible doesn't say anything about this. As you just heard, it clearly does. Now the question for all of us, the question for me, is why would Paul take this drastic action? Why would a church ever need to get to the point of asking someone to leave the body of Christ? We describes it here in a couple of words, and he describes it in the rest of the passage. But the first reason, and the most important reason, is he did it to save the man who was living in sin. You see, church discipline, holding people accountable, is not an act of anger, it's not an act of revenge, it's an act of tough love. It's an act of recognizing that the goal of God's discipline is always restoration and redemption. The passage I read earlier from Galatians 6. We are always to be on the lookout not to condemn and not to judge, but to restore our fallen brothers and sisters. God's heart is those that have rebelled against Him. Those who claim the name Jesus Christ and live in sin. His heart is that they would come back to Him and have a right relationship with Him. And so the church's responsibility is to help that happen. This man was unrepentant and he was not dealing with any consequences of his sin. Paul believed that by asking him to leave the church and having church members not have anything to do with him was a way to open his eyes. One of the toughest choices and decisions a parent will ever have to make is asking a child to leave their house for discipline's sake. Some of you had to do that. Some of you are wrestling with that. Usually when you come to that point, you've exhausted every other option. And that choice is the only way to hopefully, prayerfully help the child instead of enabling bad behavior. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about taking a child of God who is unrepentant, who will not turn, who will not change, and asking them to leave. Not for the sake of leaving, but for the sake of opening their eyes to what they're doing to their own lives. Paul hoped that through this action that God would bring this man to conviction and bring him to a right relationship. The purpose of church discipline is not to get rid of somebody. The purpose of church discipline is to bring a family member back into the family. To bring them back into the home. The goal is always restoration. But it's not just about the man. The second reason was for the church. Listen to what he says in verse 6. For your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works its way through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast. For that's who you are. 
For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Now here, Paul uses an illustration from the Old Testament, a picture. He says, listen, you are like the house. When they got ready for the Passover, when they got ready to prepare the Passover feast, they cleaned everything in the house. They got rid of everything so that they were a pure, clean, kosher house. And Paul says, don't you understand that in that house, if you have just a little bit of yeast, it doesn't just stay where it is. It permeates into the dough and it doesn't just ruin part of the dough. It ruins all of the dough. And so what Paul is saying is what happens when the church doesn't confront sin within the body. It begins to spread to the rest of the body. Let me give you a more modern metaphor. How many of you have bought some fruit in a a bucket or a bag and you had one piece of bad fruit in that fruit? What happens to the fruit? It all gets rotten, doesn't it? You get some strawberries, you get some oranges, you get some berries, and you don't look at it, and you stick it in the fridge, or you stick it on the counter, and you pull it down, and all of a sudden there's a little fuzz on one of them, right? And you think, well, I'm not going to dig down there and get that. It's not going to hurt. The next day you look down, and there's five or six that have fuzz on them. Then before you know it, the whole batch is ruined. See, what he's saying is that by not dealing with sin in the body of Christ, it opens the church up for all kind of sin, all kind of struggle. It always corrupts, it ruins the church's reputation, and it ruins the ministry of the church. And please hear me, it may not happen overnight. You may not decide, we're just going to ignore it, and, and, and the next day, all of a sudden, it blows up. But it festers within the body, and it's always, always going to come out. And what happens is, it leaves the church powerless, because the Holy Spirit has no place to operate where sin is rampant and celebrated. Let me ask those of you that are teachers, how many times have you had to remove a child from your classroom because of their behavior? Their behavior was affecting the whole class. You don't do that just to be mean. Why do you do it? You do it to get the child's attention and to make sure that that child's behavior and that child's attitude doesn't foster into the whole class. Because a child that's disruptive will hinder the learning and create an atmosphere where bad behavior is tolerated. It's the same thing in the church. How can we come and pray for revival? How can we come and seek God's face? How can we come and pour our hearts out to be the hands and feet of Christ to this community when we have sin in the house, when we have unrepented sin, when we have blatant sin? Because it corrupts everything. Paul is warning that it will affect the power and the unity of the body. And a church that ignores sin within its own body doesn't really love God and it doesn't really love its people. Because true love always confronts sin. Why did he do it? He did it for the man. He did it for the church. And then listen to the third reason, verses 9. For I have written you my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolatries. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but has sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or slandered or drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. You see, he says you've got to deal with sin in the body for that person, for the body of Christ, and then for the individual believers in the church. For the individual believers. He's not saying don't have friends or associates who live these kind of lifestyles. He said, if you had to do that, you, you couldn't live. If we said, I'm not going to be friends with anybody who is living in sin, then most of us couldn't function in the world. 
He's saying, I'm not worried about what's happening out there. I'm worried about what's happening in here. And what he is warning is, and you notice that he didn't just leave sexual immorality. He listed other sins, and all of those sins are sins that are unrepented in the church, need to be dealt with. Not just one time, not just a pattern, but unrepented lifestyle of this kind of sin needs to be dealt with. What he's saying is not that you're not going to have acquaintances. He says, don't invite those kind of people that are living in unrepented sin into your peer group, into your close friendship, into the things that you do on a regular basis. Now, I know a lot of church people have this missionary mentality that they want to be missionary dating or missionary friends, that I'm going to date this guy or this girl, they're not a Christian because I'm going to be able to lead them to Christ or I'm going to go and try to befriend this person and this group of people and I'm going to try to lead them to Christ. The problem is most church members are not spiritually mature enough to be able to do that. And instead of you having a good influence on them, they pull you down and have a bad influence on you. That's why Paul says it's dangerous. This idea he gives there at the end, he says, don't even eat with them. The idea of eat is being intimate. It's being close. It's sharing a meal. He's saying, don't invite those kind of people into your close peer group because it always is going to affect you. Paul's warning that by inviting those behaviors and continuing to have fellowship with them, it will always eventually hinder your own personal relationship to God. It'll hinder your relationship to God because what happens is it's much easier for people to pull you down than you to pull people up. I used to use an illustration when I would teach teenagers and college students that I would have the strongest person in the youth groups, the guy who was the strongest of everybody, and I'd have him stand on the stage. And I'd have four or five of the smallest little junior high people. And I'd have them come around and say, okay, now the goal is you're trying to pull him down and he's trying to pull you up. Who wins? The little weak people. Doesn't matter how strong you are. And it's the same way in your personal relationships. If you surround yourself with people that are living in sin, that are accepting sin, that are tolerating sin in their life, they will eventually pull you down. But the problem also is it also will influence the way you think about sin. Because the more time you spend around them... Instead of being grieved and broken over the sin, you start to justify it and you start to rationalize it. That's why people that I know, people that are good, that were solid Christians, that, that, that understand what is sin and what isn't sin, now try to excuse sin because they say they're such nice people. And I love them. They're a family member. They're a close friend. Because what's happened is you've allowed your relationship or your circumstance to change your truth. If the Bible is absolute and the Bible says this is a sin, and the Bible is very clear what is a sin. The Bible doesn't doesn't dally. There's there's some things that are, are, are not black and white, but there's a whole lot of things that are black and white. And usually we don't argue about the gray things. We are we've gotten to the point now where we argue about the things that are black and white. And what happens is the longer you spend around them, the more you're with them, the more their rationalization and their justification is going to wash over on you. And all of a sudden you'll start telling yourself, maybe I need to be silent. Instead of being judging. And by your silence, they'll take that as approval. The church is called to stand against sin. Not because it's mean, not because it's judgmental, but because sin will always destroy. 
Sin will always make promises it can't keep. Sin will divide marriages. Sin will divide relationships. Sin will destroy your personal life. Sin destroys your integrity. The church has got to get to a place where we hate sin. Doesn't mean we hate people, but we hate sin so much that we're willing to tell people the truth. That it's going to hurt them. That it's going to destroy them. I hate sin. I hate sin in my life. I hate sin in your life. I hate sin in people's lives that I read about and I encounter because I know the ultimate end of living in sin and the struggle with sin is death and destruction and God's will and God's Word wants redemption and love and salvation. And that comes with us being willing to stand up. So let me close. I'm going to read the end of the chapter. Verse 12, For what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? He's basically saying judgment starts in the body of Christ. For God will judge those outside. You expel the wicked. You expel those sinful people within. See, Paul says, I'm not worried about what's going on out there. God takes care of them. What I'm worried about is what's going on in here in the body of Christ. Because we as the body have a responsibility to hold each other accountable. We as a body have a responsibility to, to be truthful and to be loving. We have a responsibility to hold the church accountable. Just as if you treat your kids very different than you treat kids that are your friends, kids' friends or kids in the neighborhood, Paul says the church has got to treat its family different than it treats everybody else. Now there's also some great illustrations I don't have time for in the importance of joining the church. Why it's important to be a part of the family, not just to float. Because it's not until you become a part of the body, until you become committed to the body, that you can be held accountable to help grow and that you can help others be held accountable. The whole point of this message, judgment, accountability, starts at home with the family with the body of Christ. See, I want you to hear me. The purpose of the church is to help people discover God, to help people hear the good news of God. The purpose of the church is to help people grow in a right relationship with God. And most of the time, that is filled with pleasant things like sharing life thoughts, like listening to and bearing each other's burdens, sharing one another's pains, celebrating each other's victories. It's filled with crying with people and laughing with people and giving them security, helping them understand that they're a part of a family, that they're not alone no matter what they're going through. It's part of reminding people that God loves you and He has a purpose for your life. But there are times in the body that a church has to remind people that our God is a holy and righteous God. And if we love God, then we should strive to reflect that holiness in our own lives. You know, the interesting thing about this whole story is that we find out in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that it worked. That what Paul called the church to do actually worked. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul tells the church, listen, the guy's repentant. He actually loved the guy into repentance and back into the church. And he tells the church, bring him back. Love on him. 
Why? Because he's gotten right with God. He's repented. Now it's time to come back. So this isn't just some theory. This isn't just something that's out there. This is the reality of how God operates in other people's lives. And and let me just give you a hint, and I'm almost finished. Just the same way that this happens within the body of Christ, it can happen within your peer group. It can happen within your friendship. It can happen within your family. I'm not talking about shunning people. What I'm talking about is letting people understand that if they're going to live that kind of lifestyle, that kind of behavior, that kind of actions, that you can't be around them. Not to be mean to them, not to be judgmental to them, but to help them understand that you worship a holy and righteous God and that kind of behavior will corrupt your relationship to that righteous God. And I can't tell you how many times I've encouraged parents and I've encouraged husbands and I've encouraged wives that they have got to make a stand for righteousness and love their spouse or their daughter or their son or their parent enough to be willing to say, I can't be around you when you're like this. And while you're doing that, it doesn't mean you walk away. What does it mean? And he doesn't tell them just walk away from the guy. It means pray for him. Pour your heart out to God. Be broken over the sin that's in their life. Not standing in judgment. And the church's job is never to stand and say, look, we were right. We got rid of those people. The church's responsibility, as Paul says here, is to get on our hands and knees and our faces and get broken and greed because that person is eaten up with sin and that sin is destroying them. And it's in that brokenness and it's in that grieving that you can celebrate when somebody comes home. It's a picture of the prodigal. It worked. You see, First Baptist, I want this church to be a gracious, loving, and welcoming church that takes sin seriously. Why? Because we take Jesus seriously. Because we understand that He died for our sins and that our desire is to live as holy people that the Holy Spirit created us to be. I want us to be welcoming of all people as people of grace and as people of love. But I want us to have the courage to sometimes have to show tough love because we love each other and we love the church and we love most of all Jesus Christ. It's a message that's missing in the world today. Let's pray.